This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's an old issue, conflict of interest in the awarding of contracts. In one recent protest, a Navy employee involved in developing specifications ended up at a job with one of the bidders. For how that case turned out, Tom Temin spoke with Smith Pactor McWhorter procurement attorney Joe Petrillo. The Navy has a program to develop the next generation of its low-frequency radar jamming devices. These are pods that are on aircraft, and they already awarded and had performed R&D contracts to demonstrate existing technologies and see how they work and try some prototype pods. Two contracts were awarded to Northrop Grumman and L3 Technologies, both large defense contractors. They performed the contracts. Now we're on to the next phase. The Navy's holding a competition to determine which of those two contractors will actually develop an operational prototype and will start the process of fielding the jammers. So the protest that concerned the follow-on competition, which the Navy awarded to L3, it was a very classic Part 15 competition. Almost a fly-off, if you will. Exactly. Competition and cost factors, technical factors were evaluated. The Northrop Grumman proposal was rated unacceptable, and the Navy awarded the contract to L3. Northrop Grumman protested, and one of the issues raised was an apparent conflict of interest. One of the Navy engineers worked on and evaluated the R&D contract and had participated in writing and revising specifications for the follow-on competition, had accepted a job with another division of L3. Mm, Yeah, that gets very close then, doesn't it? Yes, that raised a red flag. The Navy said, oh, we'll take corrective action. We'll do an investigation. And they did. They investigated. They determined that there was no appearance of impropriety. L3 did not gain a competitive advantage, and they affirmed the award. Well, as you might expect, Northrop Grumman went ahead and protested again, and the issue then went to GAO. All right, so GAO is looking at this, and they're also, therefore, able to see the Navy investigation outcome which, as he's pointed out, said there was no appearance of a conflict of interest. But did the GAO agree? No. They decided that the Navy had not done a good investigation. And their decision illustrates some important features about conflict of interest, how it works, what kind of an investigation an agency needs to perform. What is necessary to raise a conflict of interest is not merely some suspicion or some you know, apparent issues that raise conflicting interests What is necessary is hard facts. And here, there were what GAO refers to as hard facts. This employee, Navy employee, um, referred to in the decision as X, negotiated employment with L3 while actively engaged in the R&D contract. Yes, so that seems to obviate the fact that he went to a different division because he was still negotiating personally on the corporate entity, regardless of what division was bidding or the division he was going to go to. That factor was of no interest at all to GAO. It's the same entity. The fact that you're going to a different part of it really doesn't matter. So X is actively engaged in the R&D contract and also developing specifications for the solicitation, for the follow-on, answering vendor questions and deciding on whether or not to change the specifications. So GAO said this meets the test of having hard facts. What happens now? Well, prejudice at that point is presumed. So, you know, the burden is shifting now from the person objecting to an alleged conflict of interest to the agency saying, no, there isn't any. And the Navy uh, did a number of things in its investigation that 
turned out not to work for them. Uh, as you mentioned, the fact that it was a different L3 entity, different division, no consequence to that whatsoever. It doesn't matter. It's the same overall family. The Navy also said, well, you know, the changes to the specifications during the follow-on competition were approved two levels above X. So it wasn't just X's doing. And GAO looked at the investigation and said, well, that's true, but your investigation doesn't show the extent to which this approval process relied on X's input. Well, beyond that, the approver may not have known that X was negotiating with L3 at the time, so then wouldn't have known whether the specs and the instructions to L3 were biased in some way. Well, I think reading between the lines is pretty clear that X's negotiations were something that were not widely known in the Navy and perhaps not known to anyone except to X. So that also, I think, is an interesting feature of this, the fact that X was keeping those confidential. Right. I think there's probably a rule somewhere that says you should notify a supervisor if you're negotiating with an outside entity that's also a contractor and recuse yourself from further work on contracts with them. Well, that was the simple solution to this problem. Had X notified his or her superiors and taken off the competition, there wouldn't be a problem at all. We're here because that didn't happen. Therefore, GAO upheld the protest. But then there's the issue that in the first place, unbeknownst of what was going on, the Navy said that the Northrop Grumman proposal was unacceptable. So now they have one they can't use because of the conflict of interest. That doesn't mean it goes to Northrop Grumman necessarily because that was unacceptable anyway on the merits. So how do they cut this baby up? Well, before we get to the solution here, there's one other feature of the Navy's investigation that I think is very important to consider. The Navy said, well, you know, X had the most impact on a specific area of the evaluation, the system's performance specification. And in that area, Northrop Grumman had no technical findings. There was nothing negative about their evaluation. But L3 did have a significant weakness. So it looks like X's activities didn't hurt Northrop Grumman or help L3. And there, GAO said, well, now that we've established there is a conflict of interest, the lack of a direct connection between X's activities and Northrop Grumman's disqualification doesn't negate the lack of a conflict or of any bias in the process, because this is very hard to prove. And here's where it's important to keep in mind that appearances count in conflict of interest. Sure. We're trying to avoid things that even look bad, whether or not they actually are. The Navy should have concentrated in its evaluation and its investigation on the integrity of the specifications and the potential for bias. Yeah, so basically what GAO is saying is once somebody spit in the coffee, you can't get it out in any way exactly. that you can trust that coffee. So we now have, as you've pointed out, a real dilemma. We've got a company that's judged unacceptable, another company that in the ordinary course of events would be disqualified from the competition. So in this instance, GAO says, well, that won't work. So the Navy's going to have unconflicted individuals review the specifications that were tainted by X's conflict of interest and independently review them. As a result of that review, they're either going to affirm the specifications and say, that's fine, we can go forward with the competition and make the award, or update those specifications, all right, we're going to change them, and request revised proposals. Uh, so that's the upshot of this. It's going to at least delay the competition, may even change the outcome. Right. And at the bottom of this is an important piece of technology that the Navy needs. Radar jamming pods on an airplane, I imagine, are a pretty strategic piece of that airplane. I would tend to think so, yes. <laughs> to put it mildly. 
Yeah, so one kind of uh, dummy really can wreck a whole program or delay it by a very long time and at significant cost. Well, as you pointed out, X should have disclosed the discussions and should have been removed from the competition. That would have led to a very different outcome. Joseph Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith Pactor McWhorter. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And you can hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Just subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, And then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, 
when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, 
and they they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. What will it take to conserve 10 billion acres of ocean, 1.6 billion acres of land, and over 600,000 miles of river? What will it take to protect and restore natural habitats in over 70 countries around the world and in all 50 states here at home? What will it take? You. Together, we will make it happen. It's in our nature. See how your gift can help at nature.org. The Nature Conservancy. Protecting nature. Preserving life.